The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. Traffic. We've all been stuck in our fair share. A backup on the Beltway, single tracking in the Metro, rainy evening commute, and of course the DC special, a presidential motorcade. Across the world, policymakers are constantly proposing solutions to improve the efficiency of our roadways and transit systems. But what about when a shock occurs, a hurricane hits, or a terrorist attack is made? Can our transportation system handle the emergency? I'm Carissa Minnick, Operations Analyst at The Lab at DC, and on today's podcast, we're talking about the strength of our transportation networks. Joining us is Igor Linkoff and Matsum Kitsak of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and our own Chief Resilience Officer for the District of Columbia, Kevin Bush. So, Maxime and Igor, let's jump right in. You recently authored a paper about transportation networks in 40 U.S. cities, and you looked at them in terms of their transportation networks being both efficient and resilient. So to start off with the obvious question, what's the difference? Maxime, maybe you can kick us off. Traffic congestion is going to be of two kinds. One type of uh, traffic congestion comes as a result of lower efficiency of a system, and another kind comes from the lower or lack of resilience in the system. What we find is that different urban areas and different uh, cities have different effects from these two uh, concepts of resilience and efficiency. And they're quite different and requires different preparation by cities and Department of Transportation. That's Igor Linkoff. Uh, efficiency can be increased by increasing uh, ability of the system to pass more traffic, but resilience is very specific. You need to think what happened when uh, accidents happen or disruptive em- events occur, and type of delay and type of situation that happen because of that are different from normal traffic-related uh, issues. So if I understand correctly, the efficiency as someone using the system would be, you know, my morning commute and just always encountering traffic on my way into the office because I'm with many other people making that same trip. Whereas resilience would have to do with a sudden snowstorm, sort of a shock to the system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Under normal circumstances, you may have longer commute or shorter commute with more traffic or less traffic. There's features of efficiency. That's Igor again. But resilience is the response of the system on both known and unknown event. You know that will be a snowstorm. Well, you don't know when and when it's happened. All of a sudden, you find yourself in a situation when you are uh, delay even more, and that has different cost and different way to resolve itself. So how did you go about actually measuring resilience and efficiency in a system? Well, this is a good question, and uh, uh, I want to say that there is no single way to uh, properly measure resilience. There is a number of competing approaches that were offered. Uh, specifically, what we have done in our recent work, we measured efficiency as the typical time delay that average commuter gets in a city 
uh, in, under normal driving conditions. For the resilience, we subjected our urban road networks to some adverse events, which we modeled as a certain removal of uh, roads and uh, lanes in the, uh, in the roads, and we analyzed the additional delay that one would incur as a result of this adverse event. So in, a, in summary, we modeled the efficiency as the average time delay use uh, you incur in normal driving conditions and the resilience as the additional delay that uh, you would get uh, if there is some adverse event in the system. So what cities do we hold up as good examples of efficiency or resilience or both? It's very interesting that you may think that cities that have bad traffic are not resilient, but this is not the case. According to our analysis, you may have cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington that are well known for bad traffic, uh, but uh, apparently Los Angeles is very resilient while Washington and San Francisco are not. And the reason is very simple. Um, you may uh, experience the same delay under normal circumstances, but when you have disruption, additional disruption, San Francisco and Washington have problems recovering, while Los Angeles is really good with recovering from these additional accidents. And why? Uh, because in Los Angeles you have many small roads, and if something happens, uh, you have all these islands of activities that are well connected through big and smaller roads. It will be additional delays, but these additional delays, which are a measure of resilience, are short. While if something happened in San Francisco, Washington, you have major delays comparable to normal delays that you experience in morning commute. So that means that uh, Washington and San Francisco are more in trouble if something unexpected or something more severe than expected happens. While Los Angeles is much better off. So is that just because of sprawl? You have a population that's just not as densely populated? Uh, what we see right now is that it's the availability of bypasses, the alternate routes uh, that uh, one might or might not have in a city that makes a difference. For instance, uh, we clearly see that in the case of Los Angeles. Even though there are major highways which are may get blocked, there are lots of local roads around them that the drivers could use to bypass uh, uh, certain disruptions. If you look at uh, the San Francisco or the Bay Area in general, there are several bridges that you cannot really bypass. If these bridges collapse, uh, the entire traffic uh, collapses. This is the observation that we made for Los Angeles and San Francisco, and we are trying to generalize it and uh, quantify it for uh, cities in general. Is there sort of a best practice for if you do X, Y, and Z, you have a resilient transportation network, or is it not as simple as one size fits all? It's definitely not as simple as one-size-fits-all. That's Igor again. Uh, but uh, in general, there are some features that you can add to transportation network that increase resilience and efficiency, and they may be different. So, for example, if you add extra lane on the road, uh, that clearly increases efficiency. Uh, it may increase resiliency, but maybe just a little bit, because if that road is blocked, no matter how many lanes you have, it still will be not possible. But if you add an extra road, even small one, that's clearly increasing resiliency. Adding the small road, if you have highway next to it, 
it may not change efficiency much, but if uh, the highway something wrong there, people can go around. So that that's clear the difference of efficiency and resiliency. Again, intelligent transportation system ability to control information may have different meaning for efficiency and resilience of the network. There are also other ideas that we have. Uh, one possibility to increase the resilience is uh, to invest into alternative mode of transportation. For instance, if you add the subway, in addition to the road network, the commuters will have another alternative way to travel if the roads are getting blocked. And so is that something you're hoping to study then? Is So currently the, this analysis looks at just uh, roadways and cars, but you'd want to look at, like you said, a subway system or bike lanes and things like that. In fact, uh, we already see that New York is doing much better than expected in our analysis. It's clear outlier, and why? Because they have very good public transportation system compared to other cities. Uh, more people rely on public transportation, and this actually make it <laughs> reasonable. Uh, they have a lot of traffic, but if we would predict with our model, it would be even worse. In fact, we are working with our European colleagues on looking at integrated train, metro, and roads in Milan. Uh, so we already start to look at the interconnected transportation system. But indeed, I agree uh, that uh, having public transportation improve resiliency a lot. Let's shift to D.C. D.C. scored the worst, correct, among 40 cities in your analysis. Why? So yes, it did score in generally among the worst, both along the efficiency and among resilience. So in, for some parameters, if, if the adverse events are on the more intense scale, definitely we see that DC is uh, absolutely the worst out of the 40 areas that we looked at. To make sure I understand you correctly. That's Kevin Bush. Are you talking to, uh, well, basically the fact that the, the daytime population in DC is double the nighttime population. So you have a lot of people traveling a long ways to get here, and they can't easily switch to a different mode of transportation if they're stuck here. Our model doesn't give that level of resolution, but assumption that we have now actually move people from areas with uh, low density to high density. And of course, in the case of Washington, you can see that uh, movement in, in this direction toward the center. Uh, which in case of Los Angeles, you have islands of activities and people move in all different directions. So it's, it's less of the problem there. Washington, D.C. is really centralized in terms of uh, location of uh, workplaces. And at the same time, it's a very expensive city to live uh, within. So as a result, a lot of people, uh, the commuters prefer to live far away from the center of the city. And yet everyone needs to travel towards the center every day. And this is one of the, uh, the reasons why both efficiency and resilience is uh, pretty bad for Washington, D.C. Well, on, on that note, uh, how do you think that innovations in employment uh, patterns and commuting patterns could impact a particular metro's uh, transportation resilience? So if more and more people in the D.C. region decide to telecommute, for instance, would that increase both efficiency and resilience? Yeah, of course. If less people travel, uh, you increase both efficiency and resilience in the system. You're just removing people from the road. If nobody travels, you have no problems, right? So in the extreme case. So definitely uh, this may be one positive component helping you in the long run. But on the negative side, you have competing issues related to climate change, more extreme uh, weather patterns. So that kind of maybe shifting you back towards uh, 
more, more focus on resilience because even if you have fewer commuters, efficiency may be uh, improving efficiency. But from resilience point of view, if you have more severe events, that may not be so beneficial. I would add that maybe decentralizing the workplaces from the center of the city towards the periphery would also help to make a traffic patterns more uniform and more resilient as a result. So you talked about decentralizing uh, areas of employment as a way to uh, diversify commuting patterns or flows. And you've talked about uh, different modes of transportation as ways to increase redundancy, I guess. Uh, are there any other ways that you think uh, metro regions could increase their resilience? There is a significant push in the intelligent transportation system. It's basically controlling traffic based on real-time information, what's happening. And it's really great. It can help. Uh, the danger, though, um, may be... Well, uh, you can increase efficiency, you can increase smartness, but by doing that, you're creating new vulnerabilities related to cyber side of the problem. So if you kind of centralize all traffic, you can increase efficiency, but if somebody hacked in your system and tried to create disruption, that might be very dangerous. So uh, we're talking about smart cities now, and it's a really good initiative, but you really need to be careful of balancing smartness and resilience. You cannot really focus too much on smartness because you are creating new vulnerabilities that may result in lack of resiliency and more you know, more detrimental impact of any disruption, whether it's uh, adversarial terrorism-related side or just accidents related to weather pattern. I don't. I, I have a re really good example. Florida power light. Uh, you remember a couple of months ago, the Florida was without electricity for God knows weeks. What happened there is Florida Power Light invested a lot in smart grids. And last year, when uh, storms were not severe, they were uh, celebrating good investment because they were able to control everything really nicely. But this time, it was more impact in that centralized control. Something on the top was damaged, and you cannot restore energy without rebuilding that centralized system, which takes longer. All right, so that's a really good example when something that's supposed to be helping uh, may be hurting. I guess basic biology, right? Having a monoculture puts you in real danger for a, a shock to your system. And so by having backups and not having a centralized system, but a, a network of, of options. Our human body is a really good example of resilient and efficient system. Right? We don't have a library of viruses and bacteria that are going to hit us. We have immune systems. So if something bad happens, we're able to react. And we don't know what hit us, but, you know, temperature goes up. If it doesn't help, pressure goes up. Your level of energy forces you to really not go to work, just relax while body mobilizing. So in a sense, that's very different from cyber resilience, as we discussed. In cyber security, we have library of viruses, and we add new ones. And if something new happen, we have to call IT because your computer is kind of frozen. So that's... Uh, where resilience can come into the play. What would be a level of functionality that we need to have in our transportation system or cyber infrastructure that would allow a system to function and recover without collapsing like our computers when they hit by a new virus?
I'm really glad you brought up the, um, both of you brought up the human biology example and analogy for resilience because uh, I think it really reflects how we're viewing resilience here in the district as well, which is that, you know, if, if you're a healthy person, right, then you're going to have a stronger immune system. If you focus, you know, a little bit on your weight and go for a run every day and get your 30 minutes of workout in and get your steps in, then you're going to be able to be more immune to that flu virus when it goes around. And so what we're really trying to do is understand, you know, where our immune system is weak, what are the, the kind of everyday things that we need to worry about so that when the big things happen, uh, we're better equipped to address them. So could you talk broadly about what the characteristics are of a resilient system, any system? The good resilience system uh, includes social component, includes information component, includes physical component. That's why problem of transportation can be resolved not just in road network, but rather in social domain, in providing better information and making you know the whole uh, system of Washington DC healthier, as you said. In fact, they're using this example in my talks as well when I try to say, well, you know, if you exercise, if you don't have too much stress, if you have good family, you are resilient. So in many systems, including military system and complex infrastructure system, you can sustain mission, you can provide services that you need only when you think about how your infrastructure talks to information that you're getting, talks to needs of the community. Without that, you're just looking in one issue at a time and that's that may be okay, but it may be very expensive and not efficient. Any DC resident right now, uh, you know, we, we were talking earlier. It seems like there's a new mode of transportation popping up every day, right? You know, obviously, uh, you can drive in, you can bike in. You've always been able to do that. Although we continue to build bike infrastructure, and it becomes easier for folks to access biking. We added dockless bikes, or we added uh, bike share. Now we have added dockless bikes. And we have electric dockless bikes. And just this week, we added electric dockless scooters. And when I ride my bike down the Pennsylvania Avenue cycle track, I often see segways, um, all sorts of different ways of getting to and from work and, and school. And I'm curious, uh, you know, to what extent you, you all have studied, I guess, that level of redundancy when it comes to modes of transportation. And the example that I would think of is, you know, if you, if you drive to work, you have a large asset that will be here. Uh, even if there's an earthquake or a terrorist attack or that sort of a thing. So it becomes harder to switch modes of transportation. Whereas if I, if I bike into work and then I get a flat tire, I'll abandon my bike, lock it to something, and I'll, I'll catch a lift or I'll walk the rest of the way. So there's a certain degree of redundancy that is available to you depending on what mode of transportation you pick. You're absolutely right. Uh, having a portfolio of alternatives that allows you to achieve the same goal is beneficial. The question, though, is how many do you need to have? Because then if you have too many, you're reducing efficiency. So a good example is mutual funds versus stocks. You know that you better off invest in mutual funds. It's kind of uh, buys you, buy down risk for you. But it's not like you can include in your mutual funds everything that you can think of. There is a rules and there, there are ideas how to build mutual funds. So similarly, uh, what our study calls for is to look at more systematic way of deciding on what is optimal uh, for efficiency and resiliency and what would be trade-offs. And first, point, like in, in mutual funds and stock, you need to quantify um, 
return and efficiency of what you are doing. So we started with defining resilience as a network property of the system, and then it will allow you to solve more complicated questions that you're asking. How many modes of transportation are optimal to Washington, D.C.? If I am city government, how much money should they invest in uh, you know, building more roads so adding additional transportation alternatives, so training people how to behave when you have emergency, right? This is all uh, resilience measures. So one other thing that one should be aware of when we are talking about the multitude of available transportation modes is whether or not these modes are competing for the, the same resources. For example, if you're talking about roads, both cars, uh, buses, uh, uh, scooters, motorbikes, they're still using the same roads. So if there is a, an impact on a particular road, neither of these modes uh, would be able to uh, go through the road. So one would be interested not only in increasing the number of uh, uh, different modes of transportation, but making also to make sure that these are diverse and different types of modes which are using different environment. So in the U.S., we've tended to focus more of our transportation investments into highway systems and roadways, whereas other cities around the world have focused more on public transportation. I'm wondering if there are any countries or even cities that you point to as a uh, as striking a, a better balance between the two modes. Well, uh, I think, in, again, uh, I'm not an expert in this, but in general, we start to work with Europeans, their public transportation networks are much better and they rely uh, more on that. So I don't even know if our model will work in Europe because of heavy reliance on public transportation over there. But we apply now with Italians for city of Milan, so hopefully we'll be able to give you an answer. Part of why I'm asking the question is infrastructure projects are very expensive and, and timely to, to run. I'm just sort of wondering if your model can inform how you would make these investments. Because like you said, there are trade-offs and you wouldn't want to put all your money into building out a, a metro system and, and neglect the roadways. Like if a cyber attack hit the metro system, you're stuck. And that's not a very resilient model. So how do we, what are the questions we should ask ourselves? And wait, let me piggyback off that too. So I'm trained as an urban planner, and what's now often taught in planning school, right, is this tale of transportation planners run amok uh, by planning only for efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so you had communities building bigger and bigger roads to increase the amount of folks that could travel through with less delay, which then enabled folks to move further and further out from cities, uh, you know, suburbanization, and then you saw the hollowing out of, of many cities. So... How do we make sure that the metrics that we're, we're planning for, and I think this is particularly relevant to you all as systems planners, don't end up in um, outcomes we, we weren't expecting or weren't hoping for? Uh, there are two components of this question. Uh, one is you have a complex system with often unexpected result of uh, your intervention because you may think that you are uh, building a big road to reduce traffic, but you're increasing traffic because now roads are available and more people travel there. So uh, having a realistic model that represents all that would allow you to study impact of what you are doing. But often uh, the model that we have now are done in isolation of uh, interconnected networks. So you may have 
transportation network for the sake of transportation network, rather than thinking, okay, so I'm city planner, what community wants me to do, which area will be developed more or less. So you need to integrate this future scenario, future vision of the city, uh, preferences of people, some communities might tolerate bikes more, other less. Some communities really only like to use uh, cars, other are open for public transportation. It's all cultural issue that needs to be interconnected with city planning and vision for the future. So often uh, from uh, what I see, uh, people tend to specialize in one area and they try to present to decision makers their vision from where they sit and it's very difficult if you are a decision maker to integrate what economists tell you, what engineers tell you, what community likes to see. Now it's done in ad hoc process. A uh, more sophisticated way to do this trade-off through decision analysis is a method for doing that available, and we are bringing those methods in what Army Corps of Engineers is doing and in military operation. And I think in city planning that should be the same. Right now, in this current stage, our model only allows us to look at the transport the, uh, on the road network transportation mode. So what we can do is we can work with the stakeholders and policymakers to really inve investigate different what if scenarios of, uh, of what's going to happen if uh, we increase uh, our lanes or we add certain roads in the city and uh, how this would affect the efficiency and resilience of the city and along the road network transportation mode. What we are hoping to achieve in the future is to, to create a more uh, general and more accurate model by adding different modes of transportation together. And once we have such model, we would be able to understand not only uh, how to improve one mode of transportation, but how to balance different modes of transportation together so that uh, uh, the overall efficiency and resilience of the city increases even more. It's a particularly relevant question in the D.C. context, too, where 200,000 jobs based in D.C. are federal government jobs, yeah. so it's one employer, right? And I think what this discussion raises more broadly is, you know, more and more data about cities and people within cities uh, becomes available, uh, and our ability to process that data becomes more efficient. You know, I was reading the other day about one of the the kind of side benefits of, of autonomous vehicles is that we'll have an incredibly rich and regularly updated 3D model of a city, right? Because anywhere a car is driving, it's it's gathering these data. And so is there are there ways to harvest that that can facilitate better decision-making? And I think that in part is what Lab at DC is trying to do is, is say, how do we apply data and evidence-based decision-making to city governance? We now shifting from situation when we had not enough data to make decision to situation when we have overflow of data. Yeah. And the challenge now is to frame hypotheses that can be supported by this data because it's very difficult. We are flooded with data. Indeed, uh, we can get even more data about how city function. It will be useful data. But there are still very few models that fuse this heterogeneous data together in a meaningful way, because simple statistics is not going to work. Simple statistics uh, cannot integrate data that don't, well, it can, but it will be wrong to integrate data that are not related to each other. So the tool that, like you mentioned, evidence-based, but it's like inherently have subjective, you have evidence for what, and this is where 
kind of this uh, social and physical science need to be integrated, and it's still very rare. In fact, that's what my team is trying to do, to really understand what are the goal of this decision maker, what kind of evidence we need to combine to answer complex trade-off questions of, well, how much economic impact would I get if I ban federal workers from showing, and what would be the impact on government operation if I do that, right? It's very, very hard decisions, but there are no statistical model or no data that really tells you do X or do Y, so it's very complicated. What's on the horizon? What's your next step in your research? Uh, well, as it, as it relates to transportation, um, we really like to move in a couple of directions. One is uh, how you interconnect public transportation with road networks. So that's one direction that we like to study. Second, uh, how you assess uh, alternatives available for city planners to deal with efficiency and resilience. Uh, how you do these trade-offs, and then how you uh, move towards portfolio of solution rather than looking at one solution at a time. The podcast at DC is brought to you by the Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Podcasts.